everyone. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the Cosmic Matrix podcast. Uh, today with your host, Bernhard Günther. And my very special guest today is Philip Shepard. And I'm very excited to have Philip on the podcast. I've known Philip for a number of years and uh, studied his work in depth and attended a few of his workshops. And before we go into it, I just uh, want to share a little bit of Philip's bio directly from his webpage. Philip Shepard is, is recognized as an international authority on embodiment. His unique techniques have been developed to transform our disconnected experience of self and world and are based on the vision articulated in his celebrated books, New Self, New World, from 2010 and his recent book, Radical Wholeness, published in 2017. He developed the practices of TEPP, which is the Embodiment Present Process, to help people reunite the thinking of the head with the deep, present, and calm intelligence of the body. Unlike the prevailing view of embodiment, which involves sitting in the head and listening to your body, Philip's approach helps you listen to the world through the body. Philip's personal path to understanding has been shaped by his adventures as a teenager when he cycled alone through Europe, the Middle East, India, and Japan by his deep commitment to and studies of bodywork, by his ex experiences as an actor playing lead roles on stages in London, New York, Chicago, and Toronto, and by the burning desire for freedom that has illuminated his entire life. He currently spends his time divided between teaching international workshops, running facilitator trainings, and participating in a documentary about his work. Philip is available for private coaching, weekend retreats, retreats, keynote talks, and facilitators trainings. And that's from his website, philipshepard.com. Or is it dot .net? Dot .com. Dot .com, exactly. <coughs> so, exactly. Just couldn't remember. So, Philip, welcome. Yeah, Bernhard. It's so good to see you. And <laughs> yes, it's been some years. It's been some years, yeah. Yeah. So, I also want to give credit to our mutual friend, Tim McClue, who introduced me to your work in a very pivotal moment and it was almost like the saying goes the teacher appears when the student is ready or it was something I just desperately needed at that time in my life and I was going through a, quite a hard time you know in my personal life relationship breakups and you know I'm, I'm you know you know a little bit of my work it can be a bit out there so it can definitely get a bit head centric so to speak and especially in this day and age and we would talk about this as well how the world keeps us in our heads and I remember he sent me what you wrote many years ago, I believe in 2012, the Embodiment Manifesto. And it just, you know, it's one of these things when I read it, it's like it struck some such deep resonance of truth. I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly what, you know, what I need to engage and what I need to reconnect. And I've always been personally connected to my body. I'm a body worker, right? I talk about this yoga, you know, body work. But the way you brought it, um, the whole point of embodiment, not attached to any tradition, right? Just but, but fusing almost mythology and science and together to a very um, approachable approach to get out of your head into your body. And um, the way you wrote the book as well, uh, when, I, when, I, when I, afterwards I got the book New Self, New World, it's quite a, you know, spiral in, spiral out approach. But it was, you're very, I could tell when, you, when, you, when I read your work and especially as the Body Manifesto that it came from your own embodied experience. You know, so you can always tell like in, when you read somebody's work where it's coming from, like is it just intellectual memorized knowledge or somebody has truly embodied it and experienced it. Um, and there's one, I mean, there's so many quotes. <laughs> I keep quoting you in my, in my articles on my Facebook. Your books are just underlines all over. So it's hard to choose what to <laughs> quote you from here at the podcast. But one quote that struck me the most in the Embodiment Manifesto was simply when you said or wrote, inhabiting your body, reuniting with its intelligence is one of the most potent political statements you can make. I'm like, boom. You know, because we are so externalizing always in our world, right? Trying to fix outside through our doing, through our acting and so on and so forth. So, but before we have, you know, we have a couple of hours before we go deep into your work, I'm really curious and maybe I'm sure the, the, our viewers and listeners as well, about your personal journey, because it's very fascinating how you went by yourself, cycled through Europe, the Middle East, India, and Japan. I want to hear about 
your personal experience on your path, which then resulted in your own work of, of embodiment. <clears throat> yeah, it's, um, it goes back to my teenagehood and this deep, deep feeling that I was being duped by my culture this feeling that they were asking me to buy into this set of values, this um, assumed hierarchy of ideas, this fantasy that, that I inevit- uh, eventually identified as the fantasy of independence. So at the core of much of our society's imbalances and and um, reactionism, where we react to things rather than integrate and respond to them, is, is our tenacious hold on this fantasy of independence. And, you know, our, you're told to become independent. You're told to, to stand on your own. You're, you're, you're the, there's the, you know, um, declaration of independence it, it, and and the one problem with that is that there is no example of independence anywhere in the universe it is just a fantasy everything leans on everything everything affects everything at a scale we can't even possibly begin to imagine so i could feel this fantasy having its talons in my culture and my culture um, having its talons in me as a consequence. And I could feel myself being diminished. I could feel myself being uprooted from my source, from my truth, from what my body most deeply knew. So at a certain point, I faced a fork in the road because I'd been accepted to study physics um, at the University of Toronto. But I'd also seen a performance of Japanese no theater. So I was, I, I'd been in theater for years. I loved theater and I'd read the treatises of this um, Zami Motokio who founded no theater with his father. And these treatises illuminated my life. So I went to Montreal, like a six-hour Greyhound bus ride, and and uh, got a place to sleep and went to the no play the next day. And it shook me to my core. I, I was disoriented and electrified by this performance without having any idea how it had achieved that effect on me because because i i mean i could parse theater i'd, I'd actually been to england and seen john gilgood and ralph richardson and alec Guinness, and you know i'd seen just about the best that western theater could offer and and could parse it to some extent japanese no theater i was lost i was weeping and lost you know that part of me that wants to understand what what's what's how are they doing this what's going on and it wasn't until years later um when i well a year and a bit later when i left my culture because i knew that if i remained i would be subsumed so forget university for now let's go to England and buy a bicycle and head off for Japan. And I honestly didn't fully expect to come back alive. Who knows? Cycling alone through the Middle East. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? How, how old were you at that time? I was 18. 18. And just yeah. quick going back, I wonder for our listeners, what is the, what is Japanese no theater? Yeah, it's so Japanese no theater is a 600 year old, form of theater. So it has not changed in 600 years. It is the most avant-garde theater you could ever see. There is, there is no naturalism. Um, it's stylized and it has a, a restraint to it. It has 
an absolute disdain for um, pretending for um, so when an old man is playing a, a young girl, he doesn't change his voice into something feminine. No, it's his voice, his fully embodied natural voice speaking her lines, and it's behind a mask. Mm. So all the lead players wear masks, and it's it's dance, and it's music, and it's poetry, and it is the most stunning example of presence I have ever in my life encountered. So I bought my bike and Mm. headed off for Japan and went through... Such a grounding, such a communion with the world around me, and passed through so many different ways of understanding what it meant to be human. Like every every culture represents what it is to be human in a different way, and 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 that story of what it means to be human imbues a culture's language and architecture and customs and and hierarchies it's just every part of the culture aligns around this story and it i didn't i didn't face culture shock i didn't feel culture shock until i'd come home and then suddenly this world that was familiar to me in its merest detail was at the same time bizarre and arbitrary. So I'd, I'd gained the ability to question the assumptions that had been seeded into my neurology from the time I was an infant. I was able to haul them into the light and begin to question them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the main things, like in that, one of the main things, so I was baffled by no theater and, and the effect that it had on me. And it wasn't until I was there studying it that I learned of the Japanese concept of hara, which means belly. And I realized in no theater, every time the head turns and sees, it is turning from that place and seeing from that place. Every time an arm lifts, it is lifting from that place. And I had never seen such a thing in all my life growing up in the Western culture. So I, I got to the point where I could parse no theater, where I could begin to understand and come to terms with that. And it changed my life. Mm. Well, it sounds very much, which we all want to get into, that was your call to adventure, right? Yeah. Stepping into the unknown. You know? yeah. and, um... <clears throat> and I mean, it was, it, was, it was a call and it was into the unknown. I mean, I, you know, it's not that I sat down with maps and plotted my route. I, you know, if I get this far, then I'll find a map that'll take me there. And I, you know, I, the, 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 the 18 year old in me said, you know, if, if I get on my bike and I start pedaling and I don't stop and I'm heading in the right direction, I will get there. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. That's beautiful because nowadays, I mean, I almost say, I don't want to shoot people. (laughs) <laughs> because the head, head likes to shoot people. But every young boy, girl, whatever, should travel, you know, right after the school before deciding what they want to do with their lives at the age of 18, 19, which didn't work for me either, right, by the way. So I, for two years of work, and then I dropped out. Um, but I'm also interested, so through your own experiences, you realized, uh, you know, through very much influenced by Japanese Eastern culture and whatnot, the, how they're living more from their belly. There's more this embodied um, approach to life. Have there been any teachings, spiritual esoteric teachings or anything that have also influenced your journey? Many, many, many. <clears throat> um, I read Zen mm. voraciously. Um, I love Alan Watts. Um, I will... I will open to any spiritual teaching knowing that um, there are currents of truth running through it. Um, And that, you know, I love Thomas Merton. Um, And and then there, you know, there are these Christian 
um, mystics, Meister Eckhart. Um, so, so yes, um, but but in the same way that I went to Japan to learn from no theater, without ever in any way wishing to be a no actor. My premise was that there were principles animating that form that I needed to understand. And then my thought was I could bring those principles into the Western tradition and see where they took me. But I didn't ever want, I was never drawn to become a no theater or a Buddhist or a Sufi mm-hmm. or I just, I, I, it was a, it was a grazing. It was a gathering. It was like holding something in your hand and wringing it. And if it thunked, I put it down. And if my being resonated to it, I, I took it and felt it and integrated it to the mm-hmm. best of my ability. So it's been something growing within your very personal and also applying in your very personal life and bringing it back, you know, like the hero's return, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, dogma stands independent of the body. And there was something in me that always wanted to come back to the body. There was this mm. um, center of my truth that I could feel. It's funny, I could feel it before I encountered no theater. This, this like deep in the pelvic bowl, this, it was almost like a, a sphere of stillness. Um, and when I come back to that, um, it's my touchstone for truth. It's, it's where I connect most profoundly with what matters to me in this moment. Um, and, and questions facilitate that process, but I find answers tend to dull it. Mm-hmm. Interesting, because I remember you talk, what I like about your work, you always go also back to the etymology of words, the origin of words, right? That helped me, you know, which I kind of got influenced by you and started, you know, like, because it's so much truth, like we don't understand sometimes the original meaning of words we use and they have so much significance. Even the word, like you mentioned, question relates to, or the word quest relates to a question driven by a question, right? By the unknown you know, wanting to know, and there's something, it goes beyond an intellectual infusion of knowledge, but striving for this inner experience of knowing, this embodied knowledge. And, and a question, the most crucial questions that have come into my life have been born in the body. So the body feels, what, hold on, hold on. And, and it, it, it orients around that and finds a coherence that enables you to express the question in words. But it begins for me with that, with that alertness of the body to something, something needs to be formulated, something needs to be brought um, into the field of your awareness and, and scrutinized in some way. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting because that, you had all these experiences early in your life, you know, as a, as a teenager, then in your 20s, obviously. But you, and then you worked as an actor and acting teacher, is that correct, for many years? And like you said, you were just um, almost birthing your work. And I'm really fascinated when, when I read New Self, New World came out in 2020. I read it a few years later. And then we talked about when I went to some of your workshops, and it was quite a long process to write that book, many, many years right? Because you let it marinate it, you, it just it came to birth. And I'm really curious how all of a sudden, you know, you decided, you know, it, it seemed almost like a download. You something, you tune into something and then it just came, but it also came in stages, so to speak. Is that correct? Yeah. It, yeah. It, I mean, I should go to the origin of the writing of the book. Um, we were on holiday and I sort of decompressed for a couple of days and was awakened at six o'clock in the morning, which is not my normal time to be awake. And I was in a flash as wide awake as I've ever been in my life with the first line of this book in my head. And I sort of lay there in the dark, electrified by this. And, you know, within half an hour, I 
sort of had a sense of the first chapter. And then, you know, dawn was happening and I was, you know, I was sort of feeling my way into the next two chapters. And so I started writing and spent the family holiday um, writing, writing, writing. So it was, I was, I was ambushed mm-hmm. by it. It's not, I sat down and decided, you know, I think I should write a book. What should it be about? No, I was, <laughs> I was seized by the jugular and it wouldn't let go. And there are people who've said, oh, it's just wonderful. You persevered for 10 years writing this book. It's like, no, no, no. It was more painful not to be writing it mm. um, than to be writing it. And the writing was a joy. And I, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I, think of it, I think of it in terms of fording a river. Like you've got this river to cross. And I wrote, I rewrote the book from scratch four times. And each time I wrote it, it was like that volume was like a stone in the river. And then I could step onto that and have a look around and find the next stone to place. And each, each new version uh, was taking me closer and enabled me to write the next version. So I was on, I was on such a deep, patient, subtle journey of feeling my way across that river, of feeling my way into what matters most in my life and also that fantasy that I was so close to being pulled into to to gain clarity for myself on the nature of that and what is happening in our culture and how that is um, like a set of blinkers on our ability to ask mm-hmm. questions and move ourselves forward. Beautiful. Yeah, this, like I'm, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, reading this book, I can really sense that energy. There's something, I mean, there's something else like coming through you, some from a higher. It's not just quote unquote you in this little Philip Shepard personality. Something you tapped into through, but through your own calling, through your own, you know, effort that the response came, so to speak, and you let it marinate. You know, that's what I mean. Like the energy truly comes through, and it really you take the reader on a journey. You know, that's, that's what I got out of this book and it grabs you. And it's definitely not just coming from a head. It's definitely not coming from a place of ambition. Oh, I need to write a book to become an established authors for my career and all of that, which we, you know, see a lot in these days. So, but let's get into the book itself because I'm sure like many readers like, okay, what, what is it all about? What is embodiment? All, I mean, listeners, new self, new world. Embodiment, can you give us a rundown, like a nutshell of what your work entails, the, you know, the core principles of embodiment. There are only complementary opposites dancing together that move us forward, that are the creative engine of whatever emerges. And One of those complementary opposites is male-female. Another is tyrant and hero. Um, uh, Body and world. You know, they, they show up in so many ways. And the book does a couple of things. It shows, it talks about our culture in its historic journey from a place where in the early Neolithic cultures were gathered around the mother. They felt the goddess of the earth and, and, and honored that relationship. Um, they, uh, they survived by noticing and feeling. As the Neolithic Revolution took hold and we discovered agriculture and we built permanent settlements, we domesticated animals, we went from feeling and noticing the world to needing to control it. And as our allegiance shifted, we moved from the earth and the mother and the goddess and the belly. So So we, in the early Neolithic, experienced our thinking and our perceptions in the belly. And that 
shows up in art and it shows up in language. And our center of awareness literally began to rise through the body as our allegiance tipped to the gods in the sky um, and the father in the family. And we ended up in our heads. So we've moved within the body from a, a place of our female consciousness, which resides in the pelvic bowl, to the pole of our male consciousness, which resides in the head. And the two bless each other. The two belong together. But then what happened was the male pole cut away from the female. It denied it. It demeaned it. It, it uh, considered it trivial and unnecessary. As soon as the male comes out of relationship with the female, tyranny is born. And that tyranny is implicit in the first gesture of taking a seed from a plant and pushing it into the earth. As soon as you push that plant into the earth, suddenly the little green shoot growing up beside it is now a weed. And until that moment, a weed didn't exist. And, and the animal coming along is now vermin because it might eat your plant. Until now, vermin didn't exist. And the, the tree growing beside it has to be cut down because it's putting your plant into shade. And so that, that it, it's not that tyranny is inevitable with that, but it is implicit mm. in that. And as our male consciousness cut off from the female, as the head dissociated from the intelligence of the body, our culture began to gather around the fantasies of the tyrant. And we atomize. We atomize our society. We atomize our bodies. We, the body then becomes a material thing, and it is separate from the world. And the thinking in the head is a, is a, is a material separate thing mm -hmm. that, that, that is dislocated from body and world both. And our whole experience of the self is one of a contracted factory of supervision. And when, when you dull yourself to the body, you dull yourself to the resonances of the world. And I really feel the body, there are many ways of speaking of the body, but I primarily feel it as a resonator like a bell. It rings to the world. It rings to the present. It rings to every current that trembles through it. And through that resonance, you feel and know and commune with the world around you. Now, if, you're, if your body is dulled to that, if, if you've consolidated it and, and stuffed it full of cotton balls, it has no resonance. So then the present ceases to exist for you as a source of guidance. It becomes yet another thing to manage. And then all you can do is guide yourself. All you can do is sit in your head and take charge and try to outthink your own life. Mm. And that's the condition into which we've slipped. So new self, new world is a way of laying that out mm -hmm. um, historically and culturally um, and, and uh, psychologically, if you will, and spiritually as well. Mm -hmm. So this body-mind split is also, you know, mirrored in the, what you mentioned, the male-female split, so to speak. Yeah. Right. And I, I, just to say, I would never call it a body-mind split mm -hmm. because tacit in that description is the assumption that a body can be mindless. Okay, it's right. like almost so, more, the, more the illusion of the body-mind split. Yeah, exactly. Mm. For, I mean, for me, right? Yeah. I mean, the only mindless body I've encountered has been in a morgue. Very true. So the body, <laughs> right? The body teems with mind. Right, we just and so, disconnected, so it's, disassociated from it. Yeah, I mean, to me, so so just, I mean, it's just my, I'm, I'm um, a fanatic when it comes to such things. So to me, it's a mind-mind split. Mm -hmm. We are schizophrenic. Our minds are divided. Interesting. 
which also like that ties into what you just mentioned, because the key aspect of your world, which I remember we talking to you and you really gave me a lot to think because for me coming in the healing arts, you know, yoga, qigong, which I practice, body work, I'm a body work, I give massages, I receive a lot. You know, I always talk, listen to your body, listen to your body. And then, you know, I remember we had this conversation at one of your workshops and like, no, no, it's not about listening to your body. It's about listening to the world through your body, right? And that like, wow, that kind of opened up so much more because then I realized, and then you can tap into the guidance of the world, right? And like you mentioned, the, the, like you just said before, the body is actually constantly taking information and experiences, impressions all the time. Everything is stored. We're just not aware of it. Right, we just have desynthesized from it, and and here's the thing: you you cannot consciously know what the body knows. So, the body processes a billion times more information than we can be consciously aware of, and there's so many um, studies that have established that. But you can't be consciously aware of it, but you can feel it. You can drop into the body and feel it in its wholeness and, and feel through its resonance this moment now and what is happening and what is coming. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's another one of those things where feeling in our culture has been denigrated and demeaned and neglected. And, you know, the supreme intellect uh, wants to feel it. It's the all-knowing supervisor. Well, it, it knows a billionth. A yeah. billionth of what the body knows. It, overestima- it, it overestimates itself. So right. it, just by that a little bit, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yet it insists on taking charge of that yeah, yeah. profound intelligence. Yeah. Let's, okay, that's, I want to like go a bit, uh, talk more about this, these polarities, which also ties into the dualities of the world, like you just mentioned, which is the, the male and female aspects of consciousness, right? Which is not, we, it's not to be confused with gender, you know, because we all have them within us, regardless of what gender you'd like to identify yourself with. And it also relates to being and doing. So can you describe, because I, I really, that helped me a lot reading in your book as well, Yourself, New World. What are the male aspects of consciousness? You mentioned some of them already. And what are the female aspects of consciousness? So <clears throat> in a nutshell, Male energy focuses and asserts. Female energy gathers and holds. So the male aspects of our consciousness, and we need both. Just, just, just to say, I'm, I, I, people have misinterpreted my work to say I'm against the intellect. Yeah, it's not um, about demonizing the mind. No, no, or the male. I mean, yeah. where the male pole of our consciousness runs into trouble is when it cuts itself off and asserts itself um, independent of the female, what comes out of balance. But the male aspect of our consciousness, the strengths are analysis. Well, the word analysis means to pull the pieces. So it attunes to the bits and pieces of the world and their relationships it it yearns to come into known relationship i i know um this is a room and that's a curtain and that's a uh, a door and i know i know everything around me i've got it all named of course there's a presumption to that and if you if you know everything well then you don't need to feel any of it which is which is sort of what happens to us in our culture. It the male aspect of our consciousness has as its primary strength gaining perspective. So if you think about the precondition for gaining perspective, you need distance, you need to step back. So by withdrawing from the body, which is our bridge to the world, into the head, we gain perspective. But then we stay there and we gain perspective on everything and gather perspectives and wonder why we feel disconnected. Well, we've moved, we've moved into a realm that, that is, is granting us distance, but it's, you know, we've mistaken that promontory for our home. The female pole of our, 
our consciousness attunes to wholeness. So it doesn't, it doesn't analyze, it, it integrates. It, it yearns to come into felt relationship. So yes, I know that's a curtain behind me, but, but that intelligence in the pelvic bowl can come into the relationship with that curtain and feel its presence. And any time that happens, you are in communion. You are not a, a receptor uh, on a one-way system of gathering information. You are in communion with the living presence of the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that shows up in physics where you cannot observe anything without changing it. You just can't. But it also shows up in etymology, you know, my love of words. So people bandy around the world consciousness and higher consciousness and more consciousness. The word consciousness traces back to a Latin verb that means to be mutually aware. Mm. Consciousness is about relationship. It's not about some lighthouse on a rock shining on the world and, and, and getting to know it from that isolation. Um, consciousness is about mutual awareness. So that realm in the pelvic bowl, which I associate with the female side of my consciousness, feels the world and feels it in relationship, feels it in its wholeness and, and receives the world. So this wants to look at and assess the world because of the um, characteristic distance it tends to achieve. The intelligence in the female bull receives the world and knows it as itself. So, so when you drop down, when you reverse that journey that we've been on up into the head and you drop down, drop the center of your awareness down into the pelvic bowl, you are aware of the world from there and it's a completely different world. So that's you know the title of my first book, New Self, New World, as you renew that relationship with that intelligence in the pelvic bowl, then you open your eyes and the world is a different place. It's like and the male has, needing to surrender to the feminine, yeah. I believe, like you said, right? And we have a yeah. turn around right now. I remember like you mentioned, is that correct? Like with the tyrant in the head, when we just um, addicted to the male aspect of consciousness caught in the head, caught in this, uh, what do you call it? Uh, almost obsession with self-achieved independence. Very good. Right. And uh, that's, you know, that's what we all try. We to be independent financially. <clears throat> I mean, like we just separate ourselves more and more. Security, security, build walls, doors, and all of that. Like leave me alone. And the feminine aspect, like you said, can only recognize the interrelationship of all that is, and that the, the truth of reality is that there's only relationship, yeah. right? Whatever you not, we're not even talking about just human relationship, but whatever anything you relate <clears throat> to. Yeah. Right. So I find that funny in our culture. Um, uh, our obsession as a culture is with organizing. And we organize everything. We organize our emotions. We organize our thinking. We organize our relationships. We organize our spaces. We organize our gardens. We, there's nothing. We're obsessed with organizing. I'm laughing because I just moved into a new house of my wife and I'm I'm trying to get organized. But, I'm organizing but a lot. I, there's a there's a, yeah. there's I mean it, if I if there weren't organization I wouldn't be able to look up a word in the dictionary. Exactly. There's yeah, a, yeah. there's a place for that. Yeah. Right? But but what happens is is then when we're trying to be present we are trying to organize ourselves into a state of presence. And that is a dead-end street. It, it, there's no such thing. There is only relationship, as you say. Yeah, you cannot think yourself into the present. And you cannot organize yourself right. into the present. It, the, you talk about that surrender. Well, the, the surrender to land in the present is to feel yourself being organized by it. Mm. You're being attuned 
by it. And, and I don't know anyone who talks about presence in those terms. And I don't know of any other terms that, that present it accurately. Interesting. Like, let's go on this word surrender, because I just wrote a new essay. You know, I've been had another download, a longer one. It's probably an ebook, 22,000 words blog. <laughs> But I've gotten, you know, also it's back to work, you know, we have all on a journey and I'm getting more, have gotten very much influenced lately studying the work of Sri Aurobindo and integral yoga. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an amazing man and it's not your typical dogmatic yogic guru if you, you think of. But he also talks the necessity, what I talked, I named my blog, the necessity to surrender to the divine and spiritualize the being. And we can talk about divine and God, you know, a bit later as well, but it is essentially the same. The surrender is like to the divine is to in the present moment to your true self to being. But I feel like, you know, I've talked about this in my blog as well. The word surrender can be scary for people or like almost have this, you know, there's also a different um, definition more in the Eastern spiritual tradition, esoteric tradition, as opposed to the West surrender means like defeat, passivity, doing nothing, you know, and, and just giving up. So what is this deeper surrender? Because the surrender is actually an active force in that sense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to me, there is a dance between surrender and security. So you surrender a little bit. I mean, just say to somebody, just surrender. It's like, yeah, just fall off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> but but to, to surrender to the breath, for example. So that you're no longer organizing the breath. The body's known how to breathe since you're an infant. And to let that happen, you're, you're coming back just a little bit more to the security of the body. And that security enables a further surrender, which enables a deeper security. And they, 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 it's like this dance between. And finally, what you're landing at is in the security of your being. And the security of your being does not stop at the skin. Your being includes everything you discover when you're fully present. None of that is, every relationship you feel is part of your being at this moment. Yeah. And so you're, so, and so you find the body at rest on the earth. And we, we cannot be present unless we are at rest on the earth. And, and meanwhile, our whole culture says up is good and down is bad. We're looking up today, right? There's no ambiguity in our culture about what that means. And in another culture, it could mean you're looking a little disconnected and flighty. Are you all right? But no, the up, the, the upper, the better in our culture. And, uh, you know, John was looking a little low. And again, we know what that means without ambiguity. Yeah. But... But in another culture, John was looking a little low. Could mean John was looking as though he was at rest on the earth and at peace with himself. But we have demonized literally the earth and down, so that we've placed hell there, mm-hmm. and we have um, exalted beyond limitation up. So we place heaven there. And my God, you want to raise your consciousness as high as you can get it. And earth, earth, what's that? I, I'm okay to leave earth and ascend and transcend. Yeah. And, and, so, and so there is no presence exactly. without the body being at rest on the earth. And as the body comes to rest on the earth, the body comes to rest in being. Mm. And that surrender that takes us there, that dance between security and being, eventually lands us on the earth in the present. Mm-hmm. And then the guidance is there. And then, and then the surfing forward on the, on the currents that inform you is the game of your life, the play mm-hmm. of your life. Beautiful. So, so going to this, back to this interrelationship between male and female, being and doing, so the... the <clears throat> Male needs to surrender to the feminine. We need to rest, to come to a surrender to being, to be informed by the world. But that's also then where we make wiser decision from. It's also you can say it, resting and being connected to our true self, soul, essence, whatever you may want to call it, you know, whatever words you want to want to define it. But then rest in this being, you get this, uh, these, you know, you stay in the present, and then you know, the, the male aspect can engage in doing, right? Or being and doing happens like ideally together, you know, like the, I remember giving this beautiful example of the Zen archer, right? Of uh, targeting the, the target and just like 
the shot, you know, it shot itself. It's like, it's not the, the archer doing the shot. It's just being, doing happiness. One, you're fully in flow of the Tao, deeply tuned into your, uh, to yourself. And then, you know, everything, what needs to be done. There's, there's no, um, willful doing anymore. And I think you talk about this as well, our obsession with willful doing and forcing things, right? That's when the main aspect, that's what basically what we see in the world uh, where this pathology has become basically normalized, right? This, this obsession with doing and, you know, and when you don't do anything, you're lazy. And I remember, um, you know, driving by some gym, there was an advertisement. It says, you can, you can rest when you're dead. <laughs> you know, we're getting all these messages <laughs> like boom, boom, boom. Or you're here even like in everyday life, like relating, you know, so what are you doing? You know, how you've been doing? Oh, I'm busy. Oh, good. You're busy. You're like, why is it good to be busy all the time? Right. There's something wrong if you're, if you, if you're not busy. So we always, it's, <clears throat> I really want to go. Can I comment? Can I comment just uh, please, first a ahead. little? Uh, um, yeah. I, so, for me, that surrender of the male to the female is, is more specifically the male surrendering its gifts of perspective to the female. Mm. So those gifts are hoarded. We, we gain an insight, we gain information, and we fill our heads and hoard that information in our heads, and it cannot integrate when it is hoarded in the head. And to me, it's a little like that, that um, sort of uh, typical engagement proposal where the man goes down on one knee and offers the ring to, to the woman or the, to the partner he loves. So that represents the humility with which the male offers these gifts to the female, and they come down through the body to be integrated. And as they are integrated, they come into their full value. So if, if the ring isn't accepted, it has no value. You can have a, a hundred rings at home. It, it, has, it, mm -hmm. it gains value as it is received by the female. So, so our culture believes that knowledge will save us and hoards our knowledge in our heads, and it never integrates. And if it does not integrate, it does not, con it does not sensitize us to the world. Because when an idea integrates, it newly sensitizes us in some way to the world. And I think sensitivity is the foundation of our intelligence. Sensitivity... Um, is necessarily reactive. So it, it has to be grounded in order to become coherent. A sensitivity that isn't grounded remains incoherent. But, but if we recognize grounded sensitivity as the true nature of our intelligence, then, then those gifts come down and resensitize us. And every time we're resensitized to the world, we learn to live a little more intelligently. And right now, we are the cleverest culture that has ever gazed upon the sun. And we have completely forgotten what it is to live intelligently. Mm -hmm. So that, that um, exchange of gifts between the male and the female um, to me, is the specific nature of that surrender. So it's not, it's not that the male gives up its, its standing or its strength or its power. It's, that it's the recognition that those only realize their full potential as they are offered as gifts to the female. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. <clears throat> now, that me also of a quote again. I want to just uh, share from your embodiment manifesto. And it's very significant because it really talks about, you know, the issue about the individual and also in the world, what we are seeing right now, have seen for a while. Ultimately, our head-centric way of being keeps us in a stressful, self-perpetuating loop. Top-down living disrupts wholeness. And lack of wholeness induces anxiety. Anxiety makes us yearn for more control. 
A more control is promised by top-down management, both within the self and within the society, even as it further disrupts wholeness, right? And it's really interesting because, yeah, we take, we, like we talk or you talk about the necessity to get into the body to feel our felt sense. Um, but we live in a world, like you said, from a hunter-gatherer now who escaped into the head. <clears throat> and we now live in a, in a world even more technology, right, which is supposed to make things easier. <laughs> we become more clever, like you said. And it keeps us even more in our heads. You know, nowadays, even adults, like, you know, like we were able to live without the smartphone just fine. 10 years ago, now yeah. most of us are just simply addictive. We cannot not look at it and check it every time, right? So, I mean, you know, my work, I feel it's done on purpose. <laughs> There's some <laughs> conspiracy behind it, you know, to keep us disconnected from our bodies, from our wisdom, because that's, like your quote said, that's how we easier control, because the Absolutely. more disconnected from our bodies, from our inner wisdom, pelvic floor, you know, making decisions for ourselves, we are up in anxiety in our head, we we're looking for then more for um, answers outside ourselves, right? Of somebody to control us in this anxiety, you know, almost ask for more control because we, we feel out of control. So we want more control, right? And then we even more subjected to be letting us being controlled by government institutions and all of that. Yeah. To me, the, the kernel of that power that is wheeled over, over us um, is is the idea that we are alone we have been atomized and we're told you know you're basically alone make 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 the best of your life stand on your own two feet and we i mean that's again the the tyrant's ideal self-achieved independence but but there is a domino effect if you feel that you're alone if you accept that and and I mean, the world feels your heartbeat. Every, every thought ripples through the universe, um, just as everything that happens there ripples through you. The, the, the aloneness um, is, is an untenable fantasy. You are, you are held in the embrace of the present and all it is in every moment. But, but if you buy into that, if you say, oh, yeah, no, I, I can feel I'm alone. Well, when you're in your head, indeed, you do feel alone because you've cut off from from the body and 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 all the bridges that it it uh, establishes with the world around you. So you assume you take into that into your psyche the understanding that you are alone. Well, then your private experience um, becomes the most important thing, and managing it and supervising it to feel good and become successful becomes your number one job in life, which is why our culture is so self-absorbed because they are trying to make themselves feel better in the isolation of their skin. They're trying to supervise mm -hmm. and manage this experience. Well, what happens with that is we live in a divided state. There is a part of us supervising and a part of us being supervised. And that divided state is self-consciousness. We live in self-consciousness where one part of the self is conscious of the other part. And the irony is, you know, you can live for 60, 80, 70, whatever decades on this earth. And your primary relationship in life is the relationship between the divided parts of yourself. And meanwhile, there is the, the felt whole, the present, the living world to come into relationship with. But that's, that's secondary to this, this obsession with the self. Mm -hmm. And when you are in that divided state, you are susceptible to everything. And I mean, our political leaders are as divided as we are and they are um, flattering the fears and acquisitiveness that that are born in our aloneness and they know how to manipulate those to retain power and and um, implement policies that will garner more votes and more money which is their primary concern. Yeah. Hence, more laws, more rules, 
Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Absolutely. That, and needing us to be disembodied, to stay in a disembodied state for us it's, to be controlled. It's, it's the only way we <clears throat> remain susceptible. Um, to, to, you know, as long as, as long as we are on our heads supervising ourselves, we're going to be looking for supervision and dogma and rules and laws. Um, um, because we are we are attuned to that. We we're, we if we don't go to our own bodies to feel the truth of our lives in this present, then we'll be looking for that truth somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Right, That's beautiful. And hence also how we then police each other in the society, right? To supervise each other. Nobody stepping out of line. Oh, hold on. <laughs> You know, that's you really can't how the, do that. <laughs> how the system keeps itself in charge, not even through outside authority, but through ourselves, through our own disembodiment, because anything you don't is a threat. You know, you need to control everything. And the chatter in the head, the self judgment is necessary for supervision. But if you judge yourselves, you will be judging everyone around you. It, it, it's it, there's, there's, there's no way around it. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Um, yeah, we're nearing the end of the first hour, and we haven't oh, touched this. <laughs> so I already know this. We probably will have, you know, we're gonna have a series with you on here it's, uh, to go deeper. But yeah, there's so many things we could go. But I just wanted because the first hour is, is for the public. I want to also now go back more for, to a practical approach because you know I've done two workshops with you, which are very profound. I can highly everybody recommend and. You know, go to philipshepherd.com. You have quite an extensive traveling list. You know, you go literally every part of the world hosting your workshops. And your workshop is beautiful because, yeah, you talk a bit, but it's very experiential, right? To give people exercise to really experience that. You know what I mean? That uh, embodiment, that surrender to the, the feminine, to the pelvic bowl, you know, that's also the gut list, you know, we all know these reference, listen to your gut, where your intuition is. And even physiologically, we know it's actually the second brain, right? In many ancient cultures, you mentioned it was considered the first brain, not the second brain even, right? Like this is the most important. That's where you actually, quote unquote, should make your decisions from. The mind is actually the worst place to make decisions from, right? It's more disembodied, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. And, and I think it can be very scary because we've never been, again, going back to society, never taught that, right? <clears throat> like I said, even education, the mind is worshipped, intellect, memorizing, grading. We learn nothing about emotional intelligence, nothing about body-mind, nothing about trusting your intuition. It's almost like discouraged, you know? And then we, are, we, just, we become insecure. We don't trust this voice anymore, right? This deep, mm-hmm, this felt sense, mm-hmm, or mm-mm, because we mean like, hold on, why? The mind was, why do I need to do this? Give me the pro and cons, like da, da, da. And I remember for myself, when I dropped out of college at the age of 20 or university in Munich, uh, and then I had this call just to play drums, like I need to play drums. And it was not a, from the outside male perspective, it's a completely irrational decision, right? Like, what are you doing? But the call was so strong, the embodied, yes. And then similar to you, you answer the call like the hero's journey, then the universe opens up and actually supports you once you surrender. That's the irony. Once you truly surrender, there's full security in the flow of life. Absolutely. And there's this thing, you know, each of us has a unique cluster of gifts and the world is calling for those to be put into service. And it's calling with the readiness to support that. Right? And we, we, we forget that part. We forget about the support. Yeah. And you don't even, as you say, you don't even discover it until you've answered it and stepped into the unknown. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. So, um, again, people can reach you at your website, philipshepard.com. Is that correct? Yeah. It will be linked in, the, in all the info section. And again, I highly recommend to participate in one Philip's uh, workshops and your work, you know, we haven't talked in a couple of years because we've been on our own journeys, right? But your work has quite developed. You uh, also um, have teacher trainings, right? For yeah. your work, you have developed, um, that's what I just saw on you, the, the, the embodiment present process, like really the whole modality around it. And you uh, have, you know, running facilitator trainings as well. Do you want to share a little bit about your work? Yeah, I'd love to. And it's yeah. it's technically the embodied 
present process. Mm -hmm. And so what, what that name is trying to point to is that the present lives within you. It's when you embody the present that you come home to yourself. It's not that the present is out there and I'm embodied here. It's, yeah, the present is out there and it's within. And the facilitator's trainings are currently the joy of my life. I'm about to start the eighth uh, one next week. And it's, it's um, we have three five-day retreats over the course of a year where we train and hang out and eat and talk and, and get into it. And um, between those, we have weekly Zoom calls. And the premise of the whole year like there are some people who see themselves facilitating the work and there are some people who just take the training because it complements a modality they already practice. And there's some people who are just doing it for their own personal reasons. But the premise of the training is that, well, you can't facilitate the training if you're not living the work. And so the whole year is how, mm. how to achieve that surrender, how to come home to the body, to the earth, to the present, to that attunement that allows your life to feel the guidance that is calling it forward. Mm. Um, and there it quickly turns into family and, and the joy of sharing and feeling this stuff together. And it feels like a little incubator where, where the whole of our culture is, is pulling us in another direction. And there is this support um, for ourselves, for each other, held within this year-long training. Um, I love every bit of it. Beautiful. Yeah, and on that, I also want to remember some, you know, I, I, I've practiced your... Um, some of your practices and techniques for a while. And also, like I told you, I implemented some of them in, in the retreat I'm hosting in, in Peru. And like my wife, uh, Laura and I, we, we uh, teach some of them, especially the, the one of the most, uh, uh, the one exercise that people love the most is the elevator shaft uh, exercise. Because especially at the beginning when you just, okay, just be in your head, like just be normal and, and you let, gaze into each other's eyes, like socially you do. It's like, okay, here you are. And then you do the elevator shaft exercise, which is in a nutshell, you imagine the ball of light in your, in your cranium and you travel down into the pelvic floor, right? Until it rests in your pelvic being, you know, and really feel that. And then you open your eyes again and look at the other person's eyes while he or she has done the same exercise. And you're like, oh my God, you connect on a level, on a holistic level. You know, it's like through the meaning to see the divine in you know, you see yourself another person or see God in the, in the other person and you have this deep, intimate connection um, that is also the foundation of, of true compassion and empathy, what we truly need in this day and age, right? This, this, this interrelationship, right? I am you, you are me. So these simple, you know, what I like about yoga, these seem to be simple exercises, but they're very, very powerful. Yeah. So again, I can highly recommend. I think you have also some of these exercises as audio yeah, I've got, um, website, I've right? got a set of eight audio exercises on my, my website. And I'm also developing a course um, based on my work that is uh, going to be on another website, TEP, T-E-P-P, TEP.life. Mm -hmm. And that's just getting underway. And I'm kind of, I'm, of course, I'm excited about that because I've, you know, on the Zoom calls in the facilitators training, every week I do a new exercise. So I've developed over a hundred practices, mm -hmm. um, just different ways of coming at it, different ways to support it. Um, so it's a real pleasure to be uh, developing that forum in which those practices can be shared. Beautiful. And before we, um, <clears throat> before we take a break, what, because you have two books out, New Self, New World, and then Radical Wholeness, which is more, is more of a condensed version for people who have never no, you know, it's like it's your version cannot be on <laughs> I know. Um, your writing says so beautiful. I mean, I feel both people should, should I, mean, I cannot should people, but I recommend both <laughs> books. But for any, anybody who has not come across your work, which book do you suggest to maybe get? Radical Wholeness. Radical Wholeness. I w Radical Wholeness is shorter. And I, on New Self, New World, I cut my sensitivities loose and allowed the language to follow that 
And the journey of radical wholeness is made with simpler language. And I love the challenge of allowing the language to be simpler without sacrificing the clarity. Mm-hmm. And the books have very little overlap. Um, radical wholeness looks at just one thing, which is that our culture has basically desensitized us to wholeness and how that happens and what the implications for that are in our life and what we can do about it. A new self, new world is a, is an overarching view of our history and the patterns within that in relationship to the body. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, Philip. So um, again, anybody who wants to listen to the second hour, uh, please sign up to the membership at my website, veilofreality.com, if you have not already done so. It also gives you access to the forum where we can discuss these topics and many, many other topics as well at the membership forum. And in the second hour, I want to talk to like some topics. I want to also address with you, you know, big topic of trauma and wounding, you know, and how that relates to the embodiment process or can be difficult for some people who have been dealing with severe trauma and wounding. I'm, I'm sure you've experienced in your work as well, individuals who have been traumatized and about talking about trauma stored in the body. I want to talk about embodiment and um, also the, the dawning of transhumanism. I know you made some references to that, which is the, the ultimate disembodied state of being, you know, man, man merging with machine and all of that. And, uh, uh, you know, also like, touch upon a bit deeper on, on the hero's journey, you know, the, the archetype of the hero's journey and how that relates to the process of the embodiment. But uh, thank you for sounds that. Like, sounds like about six hours or so. Exactly. <laughs> That's just my intention. But yeah, definitely go a bit deeper in this second hour and um, we'll see you there. Thank you, Philip. Yeah, thank you very much.